the Red Sea. That's where we're at in our passage this morning. And turning back to that passage that we read, uh, Exodus chapter 14. Let's just unite our heart and we're a short word of prayer as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy presence. And Lord, we do take a moment to thank thee for the, how thou hast touched the hearts of the congregation. Uh, Lord, we thank thee for the tremendous uh, offering that was gathered in last weekend. And to God, we give thee all the praise and all the glory. O oh God, we thank thee, thou art no man's debtor. And Lord, that thou dost meet even the need of, of the work of God. We pray, Lord, that thou would bring us into this passage just now. Give us understanding, Lord. O oh God, uh, take away every uh, distracting thought. And we pray that thou might uh, speak to our hearts, apply the word to our souls, even by thy Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that thou would fill me with thy spirit and with power. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The moving pillar of cloud seemed to lead to the jaws of destruction. The camp of Israel is pitched, but where is their position? To the side of them breaks the billows of the Red Sea. To the front and to the other side are terrific barriers of high mountains and rocks which human steps cannot surmount. But is there safety to the rear? No, there's not. Because behind them there is the deadly Egyptian foe with a rage encroaching upon them. The entangled prey is folded in on every side to despair. Surely this is the hour when hope dies. To stir themselves is a watery grave. To do nothing is to fall by the sharp, cruel scythe. To the natural eye, Israel has no way of escape. Armies of Pharaoh are behind them. The mountains were on this side and in front of them. And then the Red Sea is to the other side. You know, child of God, maybe there's times in life's journey you feel like that. Yes, we're traveling on that road to that land that is further than day, yet there may be those times that we're in great straits and trouble. Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8, Troubled, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Men and women, God is faithful. And God will make a way of escape where there is none for his people. The way of escape for Israel was through the Red Sea. But what would be a deliverance and what would be a blessing for them would also become an entrapment and a curse to Egypt. Moses had been given a word from the Lord. He told them, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Others before them and after them would find themselves encircled but delivered. Ones like Joseph, for example, or David or Daniel. Yet the song went forth. He brought me forth into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. And you know, for Israel, they were about to witness the same. And they too would soon be in song singing of the greatness of God's deliverance. For Moses, he knows all is well when God proceeds. He knows all is safe when God protects. He knows that all is sure when God gives the promise. 
God had already said to him at the burning bush, certainly I will be with thee. And those words guarantee success. And they were about to be put to the test and found to be faithful through the Red Sea. I want you to notice it. And see, first of all, here the command. The miracle of immense proportions that was about to take place ought to encourage the people of God to trust in Him, even in the most difficult of situations. You've heard me quote Matthew Henry before. Matthew Henry is a commentary of the whole Bible. If you want a, 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 a tremendous commentary, a survey of the whole Bible, I would suggest, I, I would recommend Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry said this, What will he not do for those that fear and love him who did this for these murmuring and unbelieving Israelites? What will he not do for them who fear and love him? But what we have to consider is that the command of God for them to go forward, it meant firstly a rebuke to Moses. I, want you to, I trust you've seen that when we read it in verse 15. It says, The Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. What can be implied from these words is that Moses had gone to God in prayer. He had gone to God in prayer over the situation that Israel found themselves in. And while we don't have the words of this prayer in this instance, and maybe that's a mercy of God, because God by His answer told them it was time to stop praying and to start acting. He says, Wherefore criest thou unto me? The problem today, men and women, is not people praying too much, but rather it is the opposite. We don't pray enough. But this command of the Lord surely reminds us that there's a time to pray and there's a time to act upon our prayers. It's wrong to act without prayer, but you know it is equally wrong to be liberating when we ought to be acting. In other words, when we know what to do, we do not need to keep praying. It's then that we need to put our prayers into practice. Maybe I could illustrate that in a very poor way, but... When I was a minister in Garvey, I was also the chaplain for our denomination in the Ulster University in Coleraine. I went in and, and soon got to know who was about and all the rest of it. And I saw this guy walking down the corridor. And, and let me put it like this. He was a mature guy. He was very distinct by his hairstyle, but like my own, hadn't got much. And I used to see this guy, and then I come in the next semester, and the next year, and there he's still there, and the next year, and he's still there. And I happened to say to someone, I said, is, that, is that guy a professor? Is he a lecturer? And they were fit to tell me, no, that fella, he just does a course, and then he finishes his course, and he does another course, and then he does another course, and he's just there perpetually. And maybe I could say to the students, there's times where you've done enough studying. You have to put it into action. But that guy just loved university life. And whatever course was coming up, he was into it. And there's times, men and women, when we pray, and the Lord gives the answer, and it's time then to act. And that's the rebuke that Moses had to receive even at this time. To insist and keep on praying in an instance like this is a clever form of disobedience, you know. But God is not fooled. 
Israel were being commanded to go forward. They weren't to retreat. They were to continue on in their journey. But their question might be asked, how could they go forward when the sea was before them? When God commands, he also enables. The Lord would cause the, the Red Sea to retreat so that Israel could go forward. And men and women, that is surely the desire of God for his church. It's the desire of God, I believe, for Market Hill Free Presbyterian Church. It is that we go forward. There is a spirit abroad today within Christendom that is happy with the status quo just to sit back. Or the thought is in these days... It's not possible to go forward. We're living in such wicked and evil days and all of the rest of it. Men and women, we need to go forward if we're going to be faithful to the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's why we have had our missions among the children as well as adults. That's why we do other meetings and so forth. Uh, in the work of God. And if there are the barriers and what seem to be the insurmountable obstacles, you know, it's then the Lord will make a way through for us and will prove them. And the same is true, of course, not only collectively as a congregation or denomination, and the free church needs to go forward. Let me say that. But the same is true for the individual life, the individual believer and their walk with God. Make sure you're going forward with God. Make sure that there's progress being made spiritually in your life, in your walk. Let it not be said, ye did run well. Because that's past tense. And, and, and there's so many that can say, well, you know, the Lord blessed me years ago, or the Lord did that for me years ago. What about, what about yesterday? What about this morning? Our testimony, listen, is an up-to-date, or it ought to be an up-to-date walk with God. Make sure you're going forward. The command also involved the rod that was in Moses' hand. Verse 16, But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide. And now, to the natural eye, it may have seemed utterly useless to lift up a rod before the great Red Sea. But the significance of it was that it showed faith. Moses, lifting up that rod by the edge of the Red Sea, said, I'm believing God. Moses believed God. It was only a small token in terms of the overall miracle. It was unnecessary for God to work the miracle. The rod wasn't that important in a sense, but it was an opportunity for Moses to show where his faith lay, and where there is faith, God is pleased to work. Moses demonstrated his faith in lifting up that rod, and then God was to work. But it also underlined that Moses was giving leadership amidst a time where there was the complaint of the Israelites, and there was a doubt and the dismay that he had led them to the edge of the Red Sea and into this cul-de-sac, and there was a dead-end situation. What seemed to the natural heart to be certain death was instead with a lifting up of the rod to show Israel that Moses was still leading the nation. He's still the approved. He's still the appointed man in charge. And he's going that way, right across that sea. There was accompanying this 
the reassurance. God gives his promise. You see verse 16. But lift thou up thy rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. And here it is. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Through the midst of it. When Moses holding up the, the rod in his hand and the Red Sea beginning to part, it was evident that a divine power was at work. This was something obviously more than just Moses holding aloft that rod. That is important because man always seeks to explain away the miraculous power of God. Doesn't man seek always to give some plausible, uh, rational explanation for the occurrence? Instead of just acknowledging, instead of just recognizing that it was God who caused it, it's only God who could do this. For that is what he commanded, and his promise gave the reassurance that it would be even as he had said. And that's often, men and women, how God reassures his people. He gives his promises. Promises are yea and amen in Christ. He cannot go back on his word. God cannot lie. And so while human reason may doubt and human reason may wonder, it is our duty to lay hold upon the one who continually says, it shall be done. We're laying hold upon the one who cannot lie. Now having looked at the command, I want you to notice the cloud. If you keep in mind that scene, and it is a scene that uh, is betrayed in, in, in some of the children's books and Sunday school materials and all the rest of it. Some of it's not correct, as I'm going to show you. But if you keep the, try and keep that scene in your mind, here's Israel, maybe three million. And they're standing by the great Red Sea, mountains all around, Egyptians behind. And Moses lifting this rod. Raising the rod at the side of the Red Sea and of the nation looking on it must have seemed to be a fearful prospect. And you consider what we read of the cloudy pillar in the words of verse 19. It says, And the angel of God, that's important, which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. There's a diversion of the cloud here. Uh, from it going before them, it always went before. When it stopped, they stopped. Now it suddenly was to be diverted to being behind them. How marvelously the Lord worked for Israel in all of this. It demonstrates the truth that the Lord Jesus is a high wall of defense to his people. The angel of, the, of God. Is that not a, a, a reference to an Old Testament appearance of Christ? In the cloud. He encompasses his blood-bought flock. And so they that would seek to injure them must first beat through his omnipotence. The only path for the destroyers, the Egyptians with sword, was through that cloud of a protecting God. That's something they couldn't do. It was impossible. Men and women, when the Lord puts a good hedge of blood around about us, the devil can't get through that. The devil, as he looked at Job, he could see this man. He wanted to attack him, and yet he saw the great hedge. And God only permitted the devil to go so far. He could take his possessions. He could take his, even his family. He could take his health, but he couldn't kill him. Only so far. 
Do you remember that? The Lord protects even his blood-bought flock. You'll notice the division division that's in view here because of that cloud, verse 20. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians, the camp of Israel. It was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. So the one came not near the other all the night. The pillar of cloud was a help to Israel. But at the same time, it was a hindrance to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. To them it was a cloud, to them it was darkness, but to Israel it remained a light uh, to that whole nation. The purpose of this is noted in the final words of verse 20 that we read there. It meant for Egypt that they couldn't make any advances. The darkness hindered them from encroaching any closer to Israel, while on the other side it was a brilliant light. It lit up the whole encampment. It rendered it easy to uh, make ready for the march that was ahead of them, as if it was the middle of the day. That is a most interesting double aspect of the cloud. You can just picture that in your mind. And you know the same is true of Calvary. For while it forms the foundation of the believer's peace, it seals at the same time the condemnation of a guilty world. The very purpose of the Savior coming to this world, it strips the world of its cloak. It leaves the world without excuse while it clothes God's people with the garment of Christ's righteousness and we have acceptance with God. What does Calvary mean to you this morning? There's the division in this meeting. For many it means peace. For others it leaves you without excuse. And you know, there are other contrasts similar to that of the cloud. You think of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was that which slew the the Philistines, but it was a blessing to the house of Obed-Edom. You think of the uh, stone lead in Zion, that chief cornerstone, that foundation, sure foundation. It's also a stone of stumbling to the unbeliever. The gospel is a savor of life unto life. It's also a savor of death unto death. Wonder which is Christ to you. He's either salvation or else he's destruction. Just like the cloud was a division between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And you consider here that there was a distinction. It depended upon what side of the cloud you were on. Whether you were among the Egyptians or whether you were among the people of God. Whether you were in light or darkness. Men and women, so is the distinction even in the meeting house this morning. You may have the smile of God's approval upon you, the floods of light dawn upon your believing soul, or else, else you have nothing but the frown of an avenging judge. Condemnation of God is already upon you. I believe we get a sense of that even here. For while the cloud was light to Israel and they were being shown the way forward, the very opposite was so with Egypt. You look at verse 24. It says, And it came to pass that in the morning, watch the Lord looked upon the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of cloud and of the uh, fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. That look was enough to trouble them. The Lord looked through the pillar of fire and cloud on the Egyptians. Do you know what that reminds me about? It reminds me that we read in the Gospels of when Peter denied the Lord thrice. 
The cock crowed. You know what we read? The Lord looked at him. That was some look. It was, I believe, a tender look. It was a look that was enough to break the heart of Peter because we read that Peter went away and wept bitterly. But men and women, there's no tenderness in the look that you're considering this morning and this chapter as God looked upon the Egyptians. It spelt destruction. It spelt wrath. There's a distinction and always will be between the blood-bought people of God and the wicked. It will be either on that, it will be on that great and final day, it'll be either, come ye blessed of my Father into the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world, or else it will be, depart from me, ye cursed. Make sure you're on the right side of the distinction. Make sure you're on the side with Christ. as Israel were. And that leads us, I want you to see the crossing itself. How did they cross the Red Sea? I think there's a wee children's chorus in that. Well, verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. The Lord caused the sea to go back by an east wind blowing upon it. That wind doesn't take away from the miracle. That wind rather emphasizes the power of God here because no ordinary wind could have done that. God had to be in it, for this wind produced miraculous results which stayed that way until Moses and the nation had crossed over and until Moses again stretched out his hand and the sea returned, as we read in verse 27. Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. What we must understand is that this crossing happened on dry ground. I want you to underline that. In your own heart, verse 22, the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. The waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. I've actually read a commentary some time ago that suggested they might have been like walls of ice. But I'm not going there. Let me leave that aside. I want you to see what it says there. They walked on dry ground. And we ought to notice that because five times over, in this chapter, once in chapter 15, as well as in the Psalms, Nehemiah, and in Hebrews, do we read the same thing. That surely places the emphasis on the miraculous. Whenever a riverbed or lake dries up from water, you know, it takes a long time before it becomes dry ground. So not only would it be a miracle in the parting of the Red Sea, the east wind blowing against it, but also in how the ground would be dry enough for a vast multitude of millions to walk upon it. Had the ground not been dry, rock solid, then it soon would have become a quagmire. Making it impossible for a people. Making it impossible for the herds of flocks to cross over. So there's, there's a miracle in that. And as I said, the Lord emphasizes because five times over we read the words. 
I remember when I was in Kenya some years ago, we went out to the outback and we'd be on Kachaliba, what they call that area, and they brought me actually to a dry riverbed, and I was, I was able to walk over that into Uganda. I hadn't any passports or anything like that, don't worry about that thing. Uh, but you walk over, and the, the riverbed was solid. It would have been like that for months for me to be able to walk over it and others to do the same. You get this, you get this into, your, into your mind here. There's a miracle in how the, that land was dry. And of course, I emphasize that because the, the, the dry ground, ground removes any natural or human explanation that might be offered by the skeptic. And they're always trying to rationalize how this happened. Now other events may have caused a sudden change in the waters, like an earthquake, for example. But that doesn't explain how the ground was dry, how it was solid for them to cross over on it. You also think about the description of this crossing. Now, I sometimes quote to you commentaries that I've read, but remember this, men and women, young people, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And the best commentary to describe the crossing over on the Red Sea is what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verse 29. Somebody says this. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. There it is again. Which the Egyptians assigned to do were drowned. How did the Israelites cross over? What's the description? By faith. That's it. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. From that it is clear that the feet of the nation of Israel had to step forward with the water stacked up like walls either side of them. Now here's where the picture books get it wrong. You have a little narrow uh, sort of pathway through. Now I don't believe that was the case. I believe there's a great distance between those walls. Because remember, the number of people we're dealing with here, three million. Remember that they've come out in great companies, like a, an ordered army, as we brought out in one other message. And so for them to go across in one unit, it would have been a great distance of dry ground between those two walls of water. It must have been like that. But it must have been by faith to walk down into that seabed and to start walking across. Faith didn't countenance potentially what could happen if those walls of water collapsed as it did with the Egyptians as they sought to cross over. Faith believed in what God had said and faith obeyed his command to go forward. A.W. Pink, there's another commentator, he even suggests that when they took the first step, all the walls of the water weren't yet divided. There's a thought for you. Because if that was so, then it, would have not, it wouldn't have been by sight. But the sea parted as Israel moved forward so that every fresh step, and essentially they are depending upon the Lord. They're depending upon the word of the God. That's faith. And so it was then, and so it must be for the child of God today. You know, men and women, we're called not to walk by sight. 
We're called to walk by faith. We're called to go forward when we can't see the end. Sometimes you use the knowledge of the end of the tunnel or the end of the road. That's faith. When you can't see the end, but you're walking because you're obeying God's command to go forward. We do so depending upon the word of the Lord. Before you leave, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, notice another word there. It says, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. They walked over. They walked. Didn't run. Didn't rush through at top speed. There was no confusion. There was absolute confidence in the Lord that they crossed over in an orderly fashion. Isaiah 28, 16 says, He that believeth shall not make haste. We cannot go running before the Lord. We can't lag behind. We've got to walk in step with God. The other thing we note about this crossing is, of course, the drowning. The Egyptians pursued. They followed Israel thinking that they could also navigate the Red Sea. We have it in verse 23 in our own chapter. Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. But while the dividing of the Red Sea was salvation for Israel, it was a snare for Pharaoh and his armies. Learn the lesson. Those who attempt to do without faith what believers achieve by faith will most certainly fail. By faith, the believer obtains peace with God. Faith through the blood of his cross. The unbeliever seeks by their own works and seeks it by their own means. They'll never have peace that way. Dear people, without faith, it is impossible to please God. With the Israelites making good their escape, the, Israel, the Egyptians follow them into the seabed. And for a brief moment, vengeance seems to be at a pause. But in the morning watch, God looked on them. His eye, we have read, verse 24, was to trouble them. Instead of being delivered, they were to be drowned. And my friend, I want in closing just for you to lift up your gaze from that scene that we have looked at this morning. And I want you to think of that day when we're told, every eye shall see him. Even them that have pierced him. Well, what will the glance of the returning Christ do for you? It will either be for you eternal bliss or else it will drive you lost into a Christless eternity. Every eye shall see him. Remember what Moses had told them, the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. That promise was to come to pass. The same instrument serves or uh, saves or destroys as God commands. He caused the seas to be a wall unto Israel. They were to obey their master, but with the same restless might, they also sweep the lost. To a wretched end. Verse 28, And the waters returned, covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. I like this. There remained not so much as one of them. 
not so much as one of them. And it is, as it were, the Holy Spirit erects a worthy record upon all that happened in the words of verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. It tells the gospel. That little verse tells the gospel. It tells us, yes, the Lord will save his people with an everlasting salvation. No peril shall impede their strength, their, their triumph. No foe shall hinder. Trials, temptations, afflictions shall all flee away. The grave shall not detain. The death shall yield up its prey. And the true Israel, they shall reach the other side. They shall reach that land. Of never feeling joy. And they shall ascribe their victory to the cross work of Christ. But for the ungodly, it's so different. Like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, too late they see their madness and folly. Too late they seek to turn back and flee. Too late. They confess the truth of God's word. Wonder, did you see that? You know, notice verse 25. And took off their chariot wheels that they drove them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel. They're in the midst of the Red Sea now. They're right down there in the, in the, in the bed. And they see how things are going against them. The old chariot wheels are coming off. And they, they're too late in saying, We've got to flee from a wrathful God. And you notice what it says? Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Just draw your eye over to verse 14. What did Moses tell the children of Israel? He says, the Lord shall fight for you. And ye shall hold your peace. Too late, you see. They confess the truth of God's word. They recognize too late God was fighting for Israel. God was fighting against them. The face of the Lord was against them. And dear sinner, I close simply by saying this. Take heed to the warning. You're not saved in this meeting this morning. I want you to take heed to the warning. Being eternally lost is a truth that many, many will learn too late. Make sure you're not one of them. In God's name, make sure you're not one of them. But flee now from the wrath of God that is to come and seek the Lord while he may be found. The one who went before Israel and the one whose power was to divide the Red Sea caused them to cross as in dry ground. May the Lord bless his word even to each of our hearts this morning for his own name's sake.